Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies, Foodies Watching, Watching movies. movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon. So we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following, following. the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is. Episode 6 of Poor360. As always, I am your host, Andrew Poor. And I thank you for joining me here on this pretty good Tuesday we're having. Nothing too exciting. Weather still sucks. But I live in the Midwest, so February weather is not great, usually most of the time. But I want to jump into what I want to talk about this week. And this is week's be a little different than episodes past. This one's going to get a little ranty because it's a topic that I've kind of flip-flopped on as the year's have gone on, or about the year that this uh, particular event has gone on, been a little excited, and now I'm kind of more, I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to put my feelings, I'm happy, on, it's, I'm conflicted, conflicted is a good way to put that, and yeah, it's a topic that I put out there, I saw it, I was thinking about it, and it's going to come up in a few months, this thing's all going to be finalized, but yeah, this topic, which was up against the Green New Deal, and this topic is on antitrust and specifically about the Disney Fox merger. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like Disney Fox, you're listening to the Journey to Comics Network. You're like, yes, Disney Fox. All of the Fox Marvel properties are coming home. This is great news. Disney is getting back. Marvel is getting back what they need. They're also going to get back the original Star Wars film, which means they'll be all complete. There's more unity. There's more connectivity that they can do between characters they sold off years ago. And people are like, yeah, now next... Disney just needs to get Sony, but let's not talk about that. That's a whole other thing, and that would be a terrible idea. But yes, I was like a lot of you. I saw, once this deal was happening, and I knew Fox was putting itself on the market, and Disney was interested, I'm like, yes, I saw that. As a big MCU fan, I was like, oh, this will be great news. We'll get the characters back. We might get a different Fantastic Four. We might see them roll the Fantastic Four in, especially as we're wrapping up things post-Endgame. And I was, I was excited, because I was like, the thought of... The future, what it could bring for Marvel Studios and the other properties, and the fact that with Star, with all of the Star Wars back under Disney's hold, actually kind of funny thinking about Fox or Disney and Star Wars and Fox is that they could, in theory, if they keep, since they technically would own the rights to the the Fox intro, the the big. Hi, dun 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 dun. They could throw that in front of a Star Wars movie, but that would probably be too, too much. But it would be interesting. But um, we can actually get. But speaking of the stories, we can actually get a nice maybe Blu-ray re-release with maybe the original cuts. Now that they'll have access to all of those cuts again, all the original theatrical runs. We probably won't because it's George Lucas. But George Lucas signed Star Wars away from himself. So if Disney wanted to do it, they would, and that's money on the table that no people would buy because. Me and like a lot of other people have someone made digitally made the unspecial edition versions, and I have it on my computer. And I know Nate does, other guys in the network do. And just it's good to see what was changed and how things were kind of jazzed up when George Lucas put his hands back into the pot. But yes, yeah, so we're talking about Disney, this mega corporation that now will have 
Marvel, Star Wars, Avatar, all the Fox properties. Like, it's just, it's becoming this big fish that's eating a bunch of smaller fish and becoming this giant beast that's hard to come up against. And I, when I didn't think about the logistics and all that, I was excited for it. But as I kind of was thinking more about, like, a lot of movies I like that are dramas that aren't really tied to this are all kind, or sometimes are under, like, the Fox Searchlight banner or how... Like, Sky Studios, another part of Fox, does, like, the, like the Peanuts movie and some of the Dr. Seuss things. So, and that will all get eaten. And you're like, well, that doesn't mean much. They'll just have the rights. They can still release movies under that banner. But I was thinking, like, how Disney operates, they're still only going to release X films a year. They're no longer going to have to worry about competition. So it's like, well, say Fox released, say, 20 movies a year. Very, this is... Very small, probably a fraction of what they actually do. And Disney releases 20 films a year. When Disney acquires Fox, they're not going to release all of a sudden 40 films a year because, why? They'll still see the same level of proceeds. They may release 25 or 30. They're not going to release the same amount. So we're going to see less movies overall because you're... And, like, there's six major studios now, or roughly six. I don't know the exact number, but there's... It's not as many as you think. And when Disney purchases Fox and this deal goes through, there'll be five. So it means if you're a creator, if you're someone going out there, it's like, I want to make a movie. You only have five studios. That's reducing your percentage of your movie going anywhere. Obviously, yes, there's streaming networks. There's, there's more studios popping up every time, but they're all at different levels. These big, massive studio bodies. And Disney just took a big chunk of market share. They can control, like... You don't want to get on Disney's bad side now. Not like you really could before, but... The biggest blockbusters of the year are now coming out through Disney. Especially when you know there's, what, three or four Avatar sequels still forthcoming that'll be under Disney. You have the future of Star Wars and Marvel coming out under Disney. You have Pixar coming out under, like, you know, they can say, we want more from the box office now. Or we won't give you the right soda. We'll throw it on our streaming service. Or we'll buy a bunch of studio, or buy a bunch of theater chains and only show it there. Sorry, AMC. Sorry, Regal. Like, that's something they could actually do because they will control that much of the market share and can dictate those terms. And that's why people always think this is an antitrust issue. This is what the kind of the topic was for today. That you're preventing something from becoming more powerful, something that they can control and just say, start dictating terms because there's no other option. Yes, you have other studios. Like, oh, you can go see something through Sony great but they're still only going to release x amount of films a year they're able to say oh well the all the things i want to see like this disney streaming service they're, they're dubbing kind of the netflix killer or the hulu killer you've already saw like as of the time you listen to this just yesterday uh they effectively canceled the punisher and jessica jones before their seasons even are coming out they're pulling all of the Marvel from Netflix put on their thing. So like they don't want any reason to go to Netflix for anything that they create. We're not going to see Star Wars movies on there. We're not going to see anything Marvel. Like, no new Marvel films will be on there. Captain Marvel will be on the Disney streaming service. Endgame will be on the Disney streaming service after its release. There's no... People are going to start to decide, like, if I want all of this, I'm going to have to go to the Disney. Then they have you for another platform. Hulu, they're going to own by it. So it's not, they don't really want to kill Hulu. They're just going to bolster it with their other content, their adult content. They might put... They might make a Deadpool show, like an animated show they'll put on Hulu because 
Hulu's going to be their adult alternative because the Disney Plus is always going to be family friendly. They're not going to put a rated R film there. They're not going to put they're going to put all their stuff on Hulu. A lot of their Fox stuff, like the other like the more adult Fox stuff is probably going to go on Hulu. They're going to keep everything pretty close to the vest and we're going to have to see how this all shakes out. And this originally I came up with this topic is I kind of stole upon an article which I'll kind of dive into now because it's kind of all encompassing and then I'm going to kind of break down more of the acquisition obviously from Wikipedia because that's my big source here. Like I said, Wikipedia and alcohol is how I get through my show. And as well as like kind of some of the studios they're going to be absorbing. And then kind of going into the history of antitrust law. Since the oil industry and the train industry and all of that. They're, I guess the railroad industry, not really the train industry. But you, you know what I mean. Now what I have here is an article from Screen Rant. And the title of the article is The Really Bad Effects of the Disney Fox Deal Explained. So now, with Disney's acquisition of Fox all but confirmed, the truly dark side effect of the monumental deal have come under scrutiny. In December 2015, the December 2017, sorry, the Walt Disney Company announced plans to acquire 21st Century Fox for around 52 billion in stock. The deal would give them control over some of the most iconic and historical assets in the modern American entertainment industry, including 20th Century Fox's film and TV studios, the Fox network groups, and assorted cable networks such as FX, and stakes in National Geographic and Hulu. Or defending off competition from Comcast, Disney upped their bid for Fox to a staggering $71.3 billion, with the acquisition being approached by shareholders on July 27, 2018. The deal can, be fil- can fully confirmed by June 2019. Much has been written on the seismic impact of the Disney-Fox acquisition will have on the entertainment industry and international media as a whole. Disney were already one of the most powerful media entities on the planet, having built up a sizable fortune over the decades on the backs of their iconic image and the tenets of Walt Disney himself. The last 10 years or so, their profits have exploded thanks to the purchase of major pop culture properties like Marvel and Star Wars, ensuring their undisputed domination of the worldwide box office. For the past three years running, Disney has had more films in the worldwide top 10 highest-grossing films than any other studio. The Fox deal would not only give Disney film rights to the X-Men, Deadpool, and Fantastic Four franchises, almost completing the Marvel lineup, but control over major properties like Alien, Avatar, and The Simpsons, to name but three. It will also give them a majority stake in streaming service Hulu and stakes in studios internationally such as Fox India. The merger of these two studio giants could give Disney an unprecedented 40% control over the worldwide box office. This is a level of power and industry-wide influence that has been widely criticized since the acquisition was first announced. Many industry experts warned of the negative consequences of, monopoly, of a media monopoly of this scale, and although the magnitude of it may not be fully evident until all the paperwork is signed, we are seeing the first rumblings of change happening, and the signs aren't good. The Disney-Fox mill means major job losses. So during mergers, job losses are inevitable, and when the companies involved are the scale of Disney and Fox, it's safe to say that the industry experts were predicting something of a bloodbath for Fox employees. An October 2018 article from The Hollywood Reporter cited claims that Fox executives that generous severance would be offered to those soon to be let off workers, but no indication of the time was given as to how many layoffs were expected. Former CEO of 20th Century Fox film Stacey Snyder noted in an interview with Friday how stressful the situation was for that many Fox employees whose job security was at risk for a whole year. Numbers around how many employees will lose their jobs after the merger. An omnisciously titled piece in The Hollywood Reporter that referred to the merger as making 21st Century Fox disappear. The number given was 4,000 layoffs from a base of 22,000 employees worldwide. 
Disney by comparison has about 201,000 employees worldwide. However, even they say that number may be conservative prediction, inciting Disney skeptic analyst Rich Greenfield who puts the number between 5,000 and 10,000 people. Leaders of the scale won't happen all at once. They'll be staggered across weeks or even months to make the extent of the damage seem lessened. A common tact with businesses is evidenced by the recent layoffs at BuzzFeed, which took several days. It's a long time for these employees to wait to find out their fate. And it's a disastrous step for the industry at large to put so many people out of work. The human cost of such business decision is oft overlooked during reporting, with much of the focus on fizzier stories like what films we made next, but with thousands of people about to be unemployed and one less studio available for them to work at, the merger will have an immediate negative peck that goes far beyond the supposed upsides. Now, how will this kind of affect how we see movies? Now, Disney's already having trouble spacing out their plethora of films and franchises across the calendar in a manner that will give them, give each of them a fair short shot at financial success. Dumbo will release in late March despite being completed in time for a late 2018 spot. It was only pushed back to avoid clashing with Nutcracker in the Four Realms and Mary Poppins Returns. And generally speaking, Disney doesn't release all of that many movies. In 2019, they only have around nine titles in theaters with major releases, not including Fox properties soon to fall under their umbrella. Compare that to Universal Pictures, who will, have, which, who will have 15 titles coming out this year, while 20th Century Fox has 13 titles scheduled for release in 2019, including the repeatedly delayed X-Men Dark Phoenix and The New Mutants. With that studio about to be consumed by Disney, the release schedule as we know it will be completely revamped, and that probably won't be a good thing. Fox has made some great business decisions in their past, but they're also not immune from taking, making a few flops. In the first two months of 2019, they have released... The Kid Who Would Be King and Alita Battle Angel, both of which are predicted to lose hundreds of millions of dollars combined for the studio. Those movies were the sort of risk Disney would probably never take, so it seems safe to assume we won't see the likes of them coming out of the studio anytime soon following the merger. If Disney only had to compete with themselves for Fox for box office supremacy, then they have far less incentive to produce more or varied content. The Disney model of content is already one with surprising limitations. After all, this is the studio that has built a decades-long sustainable brand without releasing R-rated movies. These historically came under a different studio name like Touchstone, and so it's unlikely they will see that will entirely kill such films, such Fox films post-merger. But they perhaps won't be a priority, particularly if there are bigger budget efforts such as the Aliens movies. James Mangold, director of Logan, was one of the many to express concerns that the merger would limit such storytelling opportunities since they don't fit with Disney's brand. In areas where Disney completely dominate, they will be less likely to invest in shows, films, and the like that further credit out the work they would put front and center. For example, will Fox's Blue Sky Studios animated films, which Disney will own once the merger is complete, get further investment when Disney and Pixar are the undisputed icons of American animation and don't want anything in their way to prevent maximum grosses? The overcrowding problem Disney face can easily be solved if they continue to further focus their attention on their most popular brands, many of which have already owned pre-purchase and aren't the focus comparing to the TV weight. The conundrum extends to the hot properties Disney will own post-acquisition, including the remainder of the Marvel properties not currently under the umbrella of Marvel Studios. This aspect of Disney buying Fox has been the most exciting part for many fans in the areas that's garnered the most enthusiastic reporting, but much of that has ignored the reality of the business. Marvel has their next phase planned out already, and so whatever comes from the X-Men and Fantastic Four will have to be adjusted to fit that. Considering that Marvel Studios is already releasing three films a year, which some have argued is oversaturating the market, there's a cap to expansion in traditional terms. 
One way to schedule will be completely demanding is in how it will affect movie theaters. Unlike most studios, Disney demands a far larger cut of ticket sales for their films and also the strictest in terms of the conditions they impose on theaters, both independent and multiplex. For example, Disney demanded a massive 65% cut of domestic ticket sales from Star Wars The Last Jedi. Typically, studios ask between 50 and 60%. They also demanded that theaters show the film for a minimum of four weeks and to do so in their largest screens. Those who do not comply face penalties and risk losing future access to Disney movies. If you own a two-screen local cinema in a town of a few thousand people, the model is completely unsustainable. Plenty of theaters, as a result, decided to simply not show the movie, the highest grossing of 2017, because it would never have been worth their while. International chains followed suit. In Brazil, many theaters boycotted the Pixar film Coco after Disney demanded a major majority cut of ticket sales. The film showed on less screens as a result, and more attention went to the Sony film Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. The film went on to become one of the 2017's highest grossing titles, while Coco made $800 million but didn't even make the top 10 of the year. If you're a local theater looking at a release schedule, and most of it's Disney, with fewer alternative routes to take from other studios who won't impose strict demands on profit and screenings, you have very few options available to you. This unprecedented level of control over the market and annual release calendar alike benefits Disney enormously, but not the theaters who show their films. They won't have the backup options to offer if Disney's demands become too much. Now, media monopolies are bad for business and consumers alike. It is a near insurmountable challenge for any business, big or small, to compete against a gargantuan media monopoly. Tom Rothman, chairman of the Sony Pictures Motion Picture Group, and a former co-chairman of Fox Film Entertainment, said to The Hollywood Reporter that the Disney-Fox purchase would be dangerous for culture because consolidation under giant corporate mandates rarely promotes creative risk-taking. This is a problem various creators have cited in recent years in regard to their potential future dealings with Disney slash Fox. Ryan Murphy, showrunner for major FX hits like American Horror Story and American Crime Story, said to The Hollywood Reporter the merger was one of the reasons he decided to sign an exclusive deal with Netflix, citing how such a system could limit the kind of risk-taking he had made his career on. Media monopolies have a trickle-down effect that impacts the entire ecosystem they inhabit. One-sided effects of the, of the endless cycle of such monopolies is that it forces smaller companies to consider consolidating their power and grouping together to fight fire with fire. Smaller companies like Lionsgate and MGM, plus indie producers and distributors like Annapurna and A24, were never going to complete with Disney on their level, but now they make, may even struggle to complete on their own terms. We've already seen A24 making deals with Apple, for example. Disney probably isn't necessarily going to invest much money in a small to mid-budget adult-oriented dramas in the manner of A24 and Aperna, although they have promised that Fox Searchlight will operate as normal post-merger, which I think is great news. So why didn't see alternatives beyond what the Disney brand can offer? Many film lovers are already complaining that the slate is overloaded with franchises, sequels, and blockbusters. What will that will that problem be exasperated post-merger? Disney's monopolist control over the market could seriously impact the free press. For journalists and critics simply trying to do their job, it's a major concern to have the fate of your career tied up to whether a corporation thinks you've been nice enough to them. In November 2017, Disney notoriously banned the LA Times from attending press screenings of their films in retaliation for coverage the paper had done on Disney's political influence in Anaheim, where Disneyland is located. They reversed the call a few days later after a massive backlash from critics in the press, many of whom threatened to boycott the studio, but the threat of a repeat remains ever present for many critics and journalists 
The Disney acquisition of Fox will abruptly change the way the entertainment industry works, and that will affect every level of business as well as those who consume it. For some film fans, the most important aspect will be the thing that directly impacts them, or the more fun elements that provide geeky opportunities, like the Marvel mashups, but the darker effects run far deeper than mere sequel possibilities. Part of being a pop culture level is the need to be conscious of what we consume and the context surrounding it. And the Disney-Fox merger is something that deserves further scrutiny from all corners. And that was their article. And one thing that I actually was thinking about as I was reading this article is that Disney, through ABC, which is the their big TV studio branch, is that they control... They basically took over ownership of the Academy Awards. So they kind of dictate how it airs all of that, the award show itself. And, you know, if you've been paying any attention as the award show has gone on, and I'll talk about this more on Wednesday when Liz and I talk about some of the Academy Award movies that we've seen and kind of what to expect from the award show this Sunday. And one of those things that they've been doing all season is they have tried to... um, They tried a popular film Oscar that didn't really go anywhere. They were kind of reversed that. They tried eliminating all but two songs being performed. They tried a host that didn't work. And they were trying to air four commercials, or four awards during commercial breaks as a way to shorten that runtime because Disney through ABC was trying to keep the time limited to about three hours so they could advertise properly, put stuff on after that, and hopefully get more viewers to tune in to equal more ad revenue, all of that fun stuff. And they reversed all the decisions, and surprisingly enough, the four categories they picked this year, which I know one of them is cinematography, which is ridiculous, was that those four categories all... Of all the 24 categories that were are being presented now, so four of the 24, of the, only those four had didn't have a single Disney-produced film in that bunch, which is kind of surprising that Disney said, well, we're not in these four categories. Let's just relegate them to a commercial break and not worry about it. Luckily, backlash is a thing in this industry, especially with social media, so that was all undone, and now we'll have all 24 airing on Sunday. It will be a longer show, but I think they're still going to tighten it up. And now, I guess, Queen is performing. So that'll be interesting if you like Queen or if you like Queen music. If you don't like Queen music or know who even Queen is, but I don't know how you wouldn't or you didn't see Bohemian Rhapsody, then you're going to wonder why Adam Lambert and a bunch of old guys are singing very unique songs. But I digress. So that's kind of the rundown on this Disney-Fox merger. And this is what could be the article that I'm kind of going to jump in that has... I'm not going to really jump in through all of the hoops and they went through because it's kind of covered it in that article, but I'm going to kind of read through this little... Um, it really just has a ton of information on like the Bidding War with Comcast, so you can really read about that as you see fit. And also there was antitrust concerns. They had to sp- they spin off the... Their, their uh, what, Sky Studios, and they had to spin off the news branch so they wouldn't have a monopoly there and their sports and all of that. But we also have seen um, kind of what is going to be affected. Like, what's the assets that Disney is going to require? So we heard about some of them, but here's the full list. Including in the deal are the majority of 21st Century Fox Entertainment International assets. They include 20th Century Fox Film Corporations, including a lease on its studio lot in Century City, 20th Century Fox, 20th Century Fox Animation, Fox Family, Fox Searchlight Pictures, Fox 2000 Pictures, 
Fox Television Group, consisting of 20th Century Fox Television, Fox 21 Television, FX Networks, FX Productions, National Geographic Partners, Fox Network Groups International, which includes groups in Asia, Europe, and Latin America, Blue Sky Studios, and Dome Shine Group, Hulu, um, which they own a 30%, Sulu has 30%, Disney has 30%, so they'll own 60% post-merger, Star India, and Tata Sky. And they're going to spin off the other things. They're going to spin off Fox Broadcasting Company, their news, um, Fox Television Stations Group, Fox News Group, Fox Sports, uh, Fox News Group, which consists of Fox News Channel and Fox Business Network. Then we also have the Fox Sports Media Group, which is FS Sports 1, FS Sports 2, Fox Desportes, Deportes, sorry, Big Ten Networks, and the 20th Century Fox do a lot, although it will be leased to Disney. Okay. Um, they're going to divest from Skypick, which is after Comcast winning bid for Sky, Fox had to sell their 39% stake in Sky to Comcast. Um, also the Fox Sports Networks, the Yes Networks, the a Networks, Europe, and the Walt Disney Studio Pictures releasing in Mexico. Looks like they're going to sell those stakes to Sony Pictures. Now, two things stood out to me. One I've talked about before is Fox Searchlight Pictures and Blue Sky Studios. Now, Fox Searchlight Pictures, for those who don't know, you've probably seen it before some of the more dramas you've seen in theaters, is an American film production company within the Fox Entertainment Group, a sister company of the larger studio, 20th Century Fox, all of which are parts of 21st Century Fox. Fox Searchlight specializes in North American distribution of independent and British films alongside dramedy and horror films, as well as art house and foreign films, and is sometimes also involved in the financing of these films. Fox Searchlight, Slumdog, Millionaire, 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, and The Shape of Water have all won the Academy Award for Best Picture at the 81st, 86th, 87th, and 90th Academy Awards, respectively, as well as further 15 Academy Awards combined. Other Fox Searchlight films receiving Best Picture nominations include The Full Monty, Sideways, Little Miss Sunshine, Juno, Black Swan, 127 Hours, The Tree of Life, The Descendants, Beasts of the Southern Wild, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Brooklyn, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and The Favorite. Sodom Millionaire is also Searchlight's largest commercial sex with over $377 million of box office receipts against a production budget of only 15. Now, it was founded in 1994 by Thomas Rothman, who I talked about in that previous article. And from 1982 to 1985, part of the creation of Searchlight, Fox previously released independent films and special releases under the banner of 21st Century Fox International Classics. Later renamed 20th Century Fox Specialized Film Division, then TLC Films. Most notable of these releases under this banner include Bill Cosby himself, Eating Raul, The Gods of Crazy, Ruben, Ruben, and Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. In 2006, a, a sublabel Fox Atomic was created to produce and or distribute genre films, but it was closed out in 2009, so it only lasted three years. Now, f- here's some films that you may... I'm going to run through the list of the films they've released... Which is actually a pretty big, good standout list, besides what I've listed that already have won awards. There's some pretty well-known films here. And it's a reason that hopefully this continues to exist and they're still able to create the same kind of films. Since Disney's not too interested in these kind of films unless they're vying for awards contention. So we have... I'm not going to do the years so they'll take too long. So we have The Brothers McMullen, Girl 6, Stealing Beauty, She's the One, Looking for Richard, Blood and Wine... Smelly a Sense of Snow, Love and Other Catastrophes, Paradise Road, The Van, Intimate Relations, Star Maps, The Full Monty, The Ice Storm, Oscar and Lucinda, Two Girls and a Guy, Shooting Fish, Slums of Beverly Hills, Cousin Betty, 
Polish Wedding, The Imposters, Walking Ned, 20 Dates, Among Giants, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Best Laid Plans, White Boys, Boys Don't Cry, Dreaming of Joseph Lees, Titus, those all in the 90s. In the 2000s, we had The Closer You Get, Soft Fruit, Chinese Coffee, Women on Top, Bootmen, Quills, Kingdom Come, Sexy Beast, The Deep End, Walking Life, Super Troopers, Kissing Jessica Stein, The Good Girl, One Hour Photo, The Banger Sisters, Brown Sugar, Antoine Fisher, Bend It Like Beckham, La Berge Espanole, The Good Thief, The Dancer Upstairs, 28 Days Later, Garage Days, Lucia Lucia, Laid Divorce, 13, In America, The Dreamers, Club Dread, Never Die Alone, Johnson Family Vacation, Napoleon Dynamite, The Clearing, Garden State, I Heart Huckabees, Sideways, Kinsey, Millions, Melinda and Melinda, Separate Lies, Roll Bounce, B Season, The Ringer, Imagine Me and You, Night Watch, The Hills Have Eyes, Thank You for Smoking, Fat Girls, Water, Little Miss Sunshine, Trust the Man, Confetti, The Last King of Scotland, Fast Food Nation, The History Boys, Notes of, on a Scandal, The Namesake, I Think I Love My Wife, 28 Weeks Later, Once, Waitress, Daywash, Daywatch, sorry, Joshua, Sunshine, The Darjeeling uh, Limited, uh, The Savages, Juno, La Mimza Luna, Under the Same Moon, Young at Heart, Street Kings, Choke, The Secret Life of Bees, Slumdog Millionaire, The Wrestler, Notorious, Miss March, My Life in Ruins, 500 Days of Summer, Adam, Whippet, Amelia, Gentleman Broncos, and Crazy Heart. In the 2010s, we had My Name is Khan, Our Family Wedding, Just Right, Cyrus, Never Let Me Go, Conviction, 127 Hours, Black Swan, Cedar Rapids, Win Win, Damaro Dum, The Tree of Life, The Art of Getting By, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, Another Earth, Margaret, Margaret, Martha, Macy, Marcy, May, Marlene, that's a mouthful, The Descendants, Shame, Sound of My Voice, The Best Exotic Mary Go to Hotel, Lola Versus, Beast of the Southern Wild, The Dodecapentathlon, Ruby Sparks, The Sessions, Hitchcock, Stoker, Trance, sorry, The East, The Way Way Back, Enough Said, Baggage Claim, 12 Years a Slave, Black Nativity, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Dom Hemingway, Bell, Eye Origins, Calvary, The Drop, Birdman, Wild, The Second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, True Story, Far From the Maddening Crowd, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, Mistress America, He Named Me Malala, Brooklyn, Youth, Demolition, A Bigger Splash, Absolutely Fabulous, The Movie, The Birth of a Nation, Jackie, United Kingdom, Table 19, Wilson, Gifted, My Cousin Rachel, Step, Patty Cakes, Battle of the Sexes, Goodbye Christopher Robin, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, The Shape of Water, Isle of Dogs, Super Troopers 2, The Old Man and the Gun, Can You Ever Forgive Me, and The Favorite. With films on the horizon, uh, including... Um, there's a good list here. We have The Aftermath, Tolkien, Jojo Rabbit, Lucy in the Sky, Antlers, Ready or Not, The French Dispatch, Downhill, Nomadland, The Last Ride of Cowboy Bob, The Keeper of the Diary, The Possibilities, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, Two Steps Forward, Family Ritual, Wendy, and Nightmare Alley. And now we have Blue Sky Studios, which is their animation division. It's an American computer animation film studio based in Greenwich, Connecticut. They have been owned by 20th Century Fox since 1997. The studio was founded by Chris Wedge, 
Um, and the company they worked in Magi, one of the visual effects studios behind Tron in 1982 that shut down. Using its in-house rendering software, the studio has worked on visual effects for commercials and films before completing dedicating itself to animation and film studios in 2002, starting the release of Ice Age. Ice Age Reader, the studio's most successful franchises, while Horton's Who and the Peanuts movie are its most critically acclaimed films. As of 2013, Scrat, the character from the Ice Age films, is the studio's mascot. So like I said, it was formed in the, between 1989 and 1989. Um, they moved into feature films, and kind of here's some of their filmography. In order to release, we had Ice Age, Robots, Ice Age, The Meltdown, Horton Here's a Who, Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, Rio, Ice Age, Continental Drift, Epic, Rio 2, The Peanuts Movie, Ice Age, Collision Course, and Ferdinand. With upcoming films, Spies in Disguise, Nimona, and Foster. In films developments, they have Mutz and Frog Kisser. They've done TV specials for Ice Age. They've done short films. Um, yeah, so they've done quite a few things. And they actually did a cameo with their Scrat character in a Family Guy episode, which I didn't realize. But yeah, they've won Annie Awards and Academy and been nominated and won Academy Awards. So yeah, they've been around for a bit and they've worked. So this is kind of studios we might lose out on their progress from this merger. Which gets us into kind of why this became an issue. Why normal c- corporations like this, ever since the, like I said, with the railroad and the oil industry, is involving the United States antitrust law. So what this is is a collection of federal and state government laws that regulates the conduct and organization of business corporations, generally to promote fair competition to the benefit of consumers. This concept is called competition law in other English-speaking countries. The main statutes are the Sherman Act of 1890, the Clayton Act of 1914, and the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914. These acts first restrict the formation of cartels and prohibit other collusive practices regarded as being a restraint of trade. Second, they restrict the merger and acquisition of organizations that could substantially lessen competition. Third, they prohibit the creation of monopoly and the abuse of monopoly power. The Federal Trade Commission and... Though the U.S. Department of Justice, state governments, and private parties who are sufficiently affected may all bring actions in the court to enforce the antitrust laws. The scope of antitrust laws and the degree in which they should interfere in an enterprise freedom to conduct business or to protect smaller businesses, communities, and consumers are strongly debated. One view mostly closely associated with the Chicago School of Economics suggests that the antitrust laws should be focused solely on the benefits of, to consumers and overall efficiency, while a broad range of legal and economic theories see the role of antitrust laws as also controlling economic power in the public interest. And this is kind of interesting, so it gets tricky. Like, you can also look at how Amazon exists and how the fact that they control a lot of our shopping, but because they're an online entity and not a chain store, and they're so diversified in what they offer, it's hard to really nail them for any monopolizing, even though they've, they sell groceries and items and electronics and movies, and they have their own streaming service. It's just... That's another thing that's the whole antitrust thing is that they're just becoming big and powerful and can do what they want. So what we have here through the history. Um, so, although trust is a specific legal meaning, in late 19th century the word was commonly used to note big business. Business that legal instrument was frequently used to the effect of a combination of companies. Large manufacturing conglomerates emerged in the great numbers in the 1880s and 1890s and were seized to have excessive economic power. 
The Interstate Commerce Act of 1887 began a shift towards federal rather than state regulations of big business. It was followed by the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, the Clayton Act of 1914, like I said before, the Robinson-Patman Act of 1936, and the Sealer-Kefauver Act of 1950. At the time, hundreds of small short-line railroads were being bought up and consolidated into giant systems. Separate laws and policies emerged regarding railroads and financial concerns such as banks and insurance companies. People for strong antitrust laws argued that in order for the American economy to be successful, it would require free competition and the opportunity for individual Americans to build their own businesses. As Senator John Sherman put it, if we will not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, and sale of any of the necessaries of life. Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act almost unanimously in 1890, and it remains the core of the antitrust policy. The act prohibits agreements and restraints of trade and abuse of monopoly power. It gives Justice Department the mandate to go to federal court for orders to stop illegal behaviors or to impose remedies. Public officials during the Progressive Era put passing and enforcing strong antitrust high on their agenda. President Theodore Roosevelt sued 45 companies under the Sherman Act, while William Howard Taft sued 75. In 1902, Roosevelt stopped the formation of the Northern Securities Company, which threatened to monopolize transportation in the Northwest. One of the more well-known trusts was the Standard Oil Company. John D. Rockefeller in the 1870s and 80s had used economic threats against competitors and secret rebate deals with railroads to build what was called a monopoly in the oil business. Though some minor competitors remained in business, in 1911 the Supreme Court agreed that in recent years, Standard has violated the Sherman Act, it broke the monopoly into three dozen separate companies that competed with one another, including Standard Oil of New Jersey, later known as Exxon, and now Exxon Mobil, Standard Oil of Indiana, which became Amico, and Standard Oil Company of New York Mobil, again later merged with Exxon to form Exxon Mobil, of, as well as Standard Oil of California, which became Chevron, and so on. In approving the break of the Supreme Court added the rule of reason, not all big companies and not all monopolies are evil, and the court's not the executive branch, are to make that decision. To be harmful, a trust had to somehow damage the economic environment of its competitors. United States Steel Corporation, which was much larger than Standard Oil, won its antitrust suit in the 1920s despite never having delivered the benefits to consumers that Standard Oil did. In fact, it lobbied for tariff protection that reduced competition, and so contending that it was one of the good trusts that benefited the economy is somewhat doubtful. Likewise, International Harvester survived its court test, while other monopolies were broken up in tobacco, meatpacking, and bathtub fixtures. Over the years, hundreds of executives of competing companies who met together illegally to fix prices went to federal prison. In 1914, Congress passed the Clayton Act, which prohibited business uh, specific business actions such as price discrimination and tying. This essentially lessened competition at the same time Congress established the FTC, or the Federal Trade Commission, whose legal and business experts could force business to agree to consent decrees, which provides alternative mechanism to police antitrust. American hostility to big business began to decrease after the progressive era. For example, Ford Motor Company dominated auto manufacturing, built millions of cheap cars that put Americans on wheels, and at the same time lowered prices, raised wages, and promoted manufacturing efficiency. Welfare capitalism made large companies an attractive place to work. New career paths opened up in the middle of management. Local suppliers discovered that big corporations were big purchasers. Talk of trust busting faded away. The leadership of Herbert Hoover, the government in the 1920s, promoted business corporation, fostered the creation of self-policing trade associations, and made the FTC an ally of respectable business. 
During the New Deal, attempts were made to stop cutthroat competition. The National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA, was a short-lived program in 1933-35 designed to strengthen trade associations and raise profits, prices, and wages at the same time. The Robinson-Patman Act of 1936 sought to protect local retailers against the onslaught of the more efficient chain stores by making it illegal to discount prices. To control big business, the New Deal policymakers, federal and state regulation controlling the rates and telephone services provided by AT&T, for example, by building up countervailing power in the form of labor unions. The antitrust environment of the 70s was dominated by the case United States versus IBM, which was filed by the U.S. Department of Justice, U.S. Justice Department, sorry, in 1969. IBM at the same time dominated the computer market through allegedly bundling of software and hardware as well as sabotage at the sales level and false product announcements. It was one of the largest and certainly the lengthiest antitrust case the DOJ brought against a company. In 1982, the Reagan administration dismissed the case and the cost and waste resources were heavily criticized. However, contemporary economists argue that the legal pressure on IBM during that period allowed for the development of an independent software and personal computer industry with major importance for the national economy. In 1982, the Reagan administration used the Sherman Act to break up AT&T into one long-distance company that served that seven and seven regional baby bells, arguing that competition should replace monopoly for the benefit of consumer and the economy, economy as a whole. The pace of business takeovers quickened in the 1990s, but whenever one large corporation sought to acquire another, it had first had to obtain the approval of either the FTC or the Justice Department. Often the government demanded that certain subsidies be sold so the new company would not monopolize a particularly geographical market. In 1999, a coalition of 19 states and the federal Justice Department sued Microsoft. A highly publicized trial found that Microsoft had strong-armed many companies in an attempt to prevent competition from the Netscape browser. In 2000, the trial court ordered Microsoft to split in two, preventing it from further mis future misbehavior. The Court of Appeals affirmed in part and reversed in part. In addition, it removed the judge from the case for discussing the case with the media while it was still pending. With the case from a new judge, Microsoft and the government settled... With the government dropping the case in return for Microsoft agreeing to cease many of the practices the government challenged. In his defense, CEO Bill Gates argued that Microsoft always worked on behalf of the consumer and that splitting the company would diminish efficiency and slow the pace of software development. So that's kind of the big history of it. And there's a lot of various cases about uh, vertical restraints and territory limitations. Now we have mergers, which is kind of what this thing was. So although the Sherman Act initially dealt in general with cartels, where businesses combined their activities to the detriment of others, and monopolies where one business was so large it could use its power to the detriment of others alone, it was recognized that this left a gap. Instead of forming a cartel, business could simply merge into one entity. The period between 1895 and 1904 saw a great merger movement, as business competitors combined into more giant corporations. However, upon a literal reading of Sherman Act, no remedy could be granted until monopoly had already formed. The Clayton Act of 1940 attempted to fill the gap by giving jurisdiction to prevent mergers in the first place if they would substantially lessen competition. Dual antitrust enforced by the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission has long elicited concerns about dis dis uh, disparate treatment of mergers. In response, in September 2014, the House Judiciary Committee approved the Standard Merger and Acquisition Review through Equal Rules Act, Smarter Act. And this affected FTC versus Dean Foods Company, Robertson v. National Basketball Association, 
Susan Publishing Company versus United States, Cargill Inc. versus Monfort of Colorado, and Clayton Act 1914. Also, horizontal mergers, vertical mergers, conglomerate mergers. So we have uh, monopoly and power. So the law of treatment of monopoly is potentially the, the strongest in the field of antitrust law. Judicial remedies can force large corporations to be broken up, be run subject to positive obligations, mass penalties may be imposed, and or the people involved can be sentenced to jail. Uh, see, under Article 2 of the Sherman Act of 1890, every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states commits an offense. The courts have interpreted this to mean that monopoly is not unlawful per se, but if only if acquired through prohibited conduct. Historically, where the ability of judicial remedies to combat market power have ended, the legislature of states or the federal government have still intervened by taking public ownership of an enterprise or subjecting the industry to sector-specific regulations, frequently done, for example, in the cases of water, education, energy, or health care. The law on public services and administration goes sniffly beyond the realm of antitrust laws, treatment of monopolies, when enterprises are not under public ownership and where regulation does not foreclose the application of antitrust law, two requirements must be shown for the offense of monopolization. First, legend monopolists must possess sufficient power in accurately defined market for its products or services. Second, the monopolist must have used its power in a prohibitive way. The categories of prohibitive conduct are not closed and are not and are contested in theory historically have held to include exclusive dealing, price discrimination, refusing to supply an essential facility, product tying, and predatory pricing. I don't know if you can hear it. My cat is purring very loudly on my lap because I am... So here we go. Um, here's kind of some of the scope of the antitrust law. So antitrust laws do not apply to or are modified in several specific categories or enterprise, including sports, media, utilities, healthcare, insurance, banks, and financial markets. And for several kinds of actor, such as employees of or consumers taking collective action. First, since the Clayton Act of 1914, there are no application of antitrust laws to agreements between employees to former act and labor unions. This was seen as the Bill of Rights for Labor, and an act laid down that the labor of human being is not commodity or article of commerce. The purpose was to ensure that employees with unequal bargaining power were not prevented from combining in the same way that their employees could combine in corporations. Turning to the restriction on merger that the Clayton Act set out, however, sufficiently autonomous workers such as professional sports players have been held to fall within antitrust provisions. Pro sports exemptions and the NFL cartel Second, professional sports league enjoy a number of exemptions, mergers, and joint agreements of professional football, hockey, bas uh, baseball, and basketball leagues are exempt. Major League Baseball was held to be broadly exempt from antitrust law in Federal Baseball Club versus National League. Holmes J. held the baseball league's organization meant that there was no commerce between the United States taking place, even though teams traveled across state lines to put on the games. The travel was merely incidental of business which took place in each state, it was ultimately held in 1952 in Toulson v. New York Yankees, and again in 1972, Flood v. Cun. The Baseball League's exemption was an aberration. However, Congress has accepted it and favored it, so retroactively overruling the exemption was no longer a matter of the courts, but the legislature. In United States v. International Box Club of New York, it was held that, unlike baseball, boxing was not exempt, 
and in Radovich v. National Football League, professional football is generally subject to antitrust laws. As a result of the NFL, AFL-NFL merger, the National Football League was also given exemptions in exchange for certain conditions, such as not directly competing with college or high school football. However, the 2017 Supreme Court ruling in American Needle v. NFL characterized the NFL as a cartel of 32 independent businesses subject to antitrust law, not a single entity. So, definitely a lot going on here. And there's really a lot of information that you really should just dig out. I'm not going to be able to really delve into all of it. But it's definitely good to study up on this because I think as a lot of companies expand, we see Apple, which went from a hardware and software company to get into the mobile industry, to the music industry, to now wanting to do movies and TV. We've seen Facebook go from a social network to creating hardware that connects us through video conferencing to now making their own entertainment through Facebook Watch. We've just seen a lot of companies evolve and change. And is that create a monopoly? Does the fact that Amazon can sell me, can send me groceries, send me tools, send me anything I need, plus also provide me a form of entertainment, is that too much control? Is that become a monopoly? Is the fact that one company can just expand into so many different directions that it's no longer what it originally was, is that considered a problem? Is that considered an antitrust issue? Is that something the government should try and break up? Or is it something we should really concern ourselves with? That's kind of for you to decide. That's something that you should dig further into. I think we've all learned a lot here. So that'll wrap us up for Poor360 for this week. This has been very helpful for me. I know I learned a lot. It's very interesting. I got to vent a little because of how I feel about what's been going on with the Disney Fox deal and how I'm both excited for the possibility of what we can get in terms of content. I feel bad for how this affects people and workers and the entertainment industry as a whole. But I'm Andrew Poor. You guys have a great week. I'll be back with you soon. This episode's a little long. I've been kind of running my episode a little long lately. So I think I'm going to forego doing a mini episode on the tail end of this. But with that said, I think there'll be some fun ones coming in the not too distant future. So thanks you guys for listening. Have a great week. You've been listening to Poor360. You can find us on the socials at Poor360 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us and all the other podcasts on our network at journeyintocomics.com or early access at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics. You can find us on all podcasting platforms like CastBox, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many others. Hey guys, Deadpool here. Just wanted to tell you about a little event that's happening on March 23rd. Fun for Funds, it's a Journey into Comics Network event featuring live podcasts from Brews with Dudes, Podcastrophy, Dungeons with Dudes, and Journey into Comics, as well as performances by band number one, Boner Jovi, ooh, that sounds fun, Walk Among Us, Yesterday's Chips, also featuring live stand-up by comedian Patrick Murray, he's so much fun, presented by Journey into Comics Network and the Doom Room. North and Pub, Lafayette, Indiana, Doors for Three, Podcasts at Four with Bands at 730, $10, it's 21 and up, don't try to sneak in, you silly kids. <laughs>